0: A Christian publication or organization celebrated or appreciated the confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson. That caused a bit of a kerfuffle, but I want to start here with some research I've done and a story I want to tell you on this week's Corey True Act Show. First, before I get into that, to Tiffany and Joshua and a few others who sent in the fact that they had seen Coexist stickers. Thank you. I mentioned that on the last week's show. I didn't think I was going to get any feedback, but I got like five or six of you sent in that you saw some uh, Coexist stickers. They're still out there in the wild. That's also a good opportunity for me to say hi again to Joshua. I think it was in a band called Three Days Leave. I think that's right. Back when I was in a band called Three Nails. And it harkens back to a time in my life that I basically forgot ever happened. Welcome to the Corey Act Show on His Radio Talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings, and you're invited. I'll be preaching the next four Sundays, starting on Easter Sunday and then the following three. You're invited for that and every one after that if you are not currently involved in a church. I want to get into the topic that we're going to spend most of today on quickly because it is a lot of information to give you, and I promise you, By the end of it, I'm making this guarantee. I'm pitching this to you. You will be smarter. You will know information that you didn't previously know, and it will help clarify and crystallize the world around you so that you understand what's happening. Here's how it all began. I saw that Disney, the Disney Corporation, was putting out an ad to oppose legislation in states that ban gender, the the euphemism is gender reassignment surgery, but sex changes in children and minors and teenagers. And I'm going to say this fairly starkly. I'm sorry if it upsets anybody. But Disney came out with an ad to oppose cutting the penis and testicles off of boys and cutting into the genitalia of girls to try to make something that kind of looks like male genitalia. That is actually what they oppose. They say they oppose pumping kids with hormones and cutting off the breasts of young teenage girls. And I asked myself, how did we get here? And it harkened back for me to other experiences we've had the last few years. How did we get to a spot where Home Depot and Coca-Cola felt like they had to make statements about a voting rights bill in Georgia to oppose it? How did we get to a spot where Disney is at war with Florida over some of their legislation? How on earth did we get to a spot where Major League Baseball left Georgia for the All-Star Game and moved it to Colorado? You remember a few years ago when the NCAA took the ACC football championship game out of North Carolina because Charlotte was going to have a policy regarding men going to the men's bathroom and women going to the women's bathroom. How did we get to a place where businesses, big business, became so aligned to secular progressive humanist left-wing thinking? Because you wouldn't think it would be them. I've mentioned this on the show before. There's a philosopher from centuries ago that said cultures are made up primarily of seven institutions. I've mentioned also before some charismatic types and some less than theologically rigorous types call these the seven mountains of a culture, seven mountains to conquer. I'm I'm not a fan of how they handle it, but these are a good seven categories that make up a culture, and you can ask yourself, who's in charge? Who has won these seven things? Is it Traditional biblical worldview values or has it been secular, progressive, leftist values? Here are the seven. Number one, family. We largely see the family now as whatever one you make. And I understand there are bad situations out there, and there's some sweetness and goodness that the Lord is gracious that we can create families that are broken and sinful situations. But the nuclear family has taken a hit. The secular progressive humanists won that one. Two, the government. We know who's in charge there the education system the media and entertainment those are five and it's very clear on those five family government education media and entertainment secular progressive humanism which is ultimately satanism the true satanism is the worship of the self that that's what runs those parts of our institution but then there are two more there's religion and business and certainly our National health when it comes to our religious institutions isn't super strong, but it hasn't been taken over by the secular progressive left. There are certain strains of mainline Protestantism that have been, but I would I would say at large we're still fighting that battle and business has largely been aligned to traditional biblical worldview values for the most part. So how is business now being taken? That is the question I began to ponder. How did the 2nd progressive left leftist-wokest ideology now infect our country's largest business institutions? And when I start telling you this story, the, the place I start, you might roll your eyes and think, hey, don't, man, you're, you're going out there, man. But guys, listen, I actually did a lot of preparation for this. I want to tell you a story on how we got to where we're getting and along the way, excuse me, how we've gotten to where we are And you'll learn a lot of history that I think explains the world around you as we go. So that's the question. How did secular, progressive, leftist, woke humanism start to infect our largest businesses? Believe it or not, it starts with a guy named Karl Marx. Don't roll your eyes. Stick with me. Karl Marx brought us communism. The most deadly, destructive, ruinous ideology of human history, maybe, responsible for millions of deaths. And Marx believed this. He believed that capitalism, the system of, of economics that most closely aligns with the Bible, I did not call it biblical, I said most closely aligns with biblical thinking. He said it will collapse on itself. Capitalism, this is his thinking, capitalism generates so much wealth, it generates so much revenue. And what's going to happen is that revenue will be kept by just a few. Only a few will benefit from it. And so by its own nature, capitalism will create its own revolution. The, the proletariat, those who didn't benefit from the, the, the benefits of their labor, they didn't get the, the proceeds of their labor, they're going to rise up. They're going to overthrow the ones that kept all that awesome revenue, and they're going to institute communism. And he predicted it. He said in the next hundred years, you'll see it all across the Western world. That was the Marxist theory. And a hundred years passed, decades passed after his death, and it wasn't true. The Western capitalist economies in Britain and in France, which is still technically capitalist in America, were moving right along. Wealth was being generated for every, every income group, and there was no sign of dissatisfaction with capitalism anywhere. And it left the Marxists, those who held to Marxism, asking this question. Why did we fail? Why was Marx so wrong on what he predicted would happen? Enter a guy named Antonio Gramsci. I wish more Americans knew his name. He's a very important figure in the world that we're living in right now. He was an Italian Marxist, and he became the primary intellectual force inside Marxism and leftism in Europe and in America many, many decades after Marx died. Gramsci came to this conclusion. Economics, the markets, money, it's not the core of a people group. It's not the core of a country. He concluded that upstream of the economy is a culture. And because the Western world was largely built out of Christian societies— the post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment societies that still had, that had different kinds of Christianity, but in the end, the Western world was built on biblical thinking. And so the, that biblical thinking about hard work and earning what you have, taking care of your neighbor yourself and not asking the government to do it, not looking at someone else's property and coveting it, not looking at others' other property and, and being jealous and wanting to take it, That biblical worldview, the virtue of the people, would never allow for the Marxist overthrow. It would never allow for the revolution they wanted. And so Gramsci wrote the book, and I actually pulled the quote for you. He said it in this way. In this new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture. See what he says there? That Hey, there's some things that make up a culture, and if Christianity has a hold of those things, we'll never get to our Marxism. We'll never get to our communism. And so here's the end of that quote. Socialism will triumph by capturing the culture via schools, universities, churches, and media, transforming the consciousness of a society, end quote. He, le- he later said, after we conquer those, after we get the schools, the universities, the churches, and the media, then will take the police, the, the legal courts, the civil service, the, the state, the government. And so the Marxism that thought it was going to get a revolution that was wrong, later Gramsci come along and sa- comes along and says, well, we will get our totalitarianism, we'll get our total control if we take over the institutions. Now remember what I opened with. There are seven that make up a culture. Family, government, education. Media, entertainment. And you know what I think has happened? Gramsky was successful. He looked at the Western world's institutions and said, we got to destroy the nuclear family. We can't just have moms and dads raising their kids and their own values. We need to take them from them. We have to make sure that there's not an idea that the family unit, God's creation here, would be independent. We, we need it dependent. And they started taking over the family promoting divorce, promoting the government as dad so that, ladies, you don't need a father. Uncle Sam will be the daddy. They infiltrated governments and have succeeded in having a lot of people see that government as God. They infiltrated education and said they're going to teach their values to your kids. They obviously infiltrated the media. Entertainment is basically propaganda for left-wing so uh, let's go with secular humanist values. They didn't get to business until now. Left the cultural secular progressive humanists. The acolytes of a guy like Gramsky. And here's what I discovered. The method whereby they are affecting business is systematized. It's it's a, it's readable. It's it's discoverable, and much smarter people than I have found it and written about it quite a bit. And I've read what they have written. And when we come back from this break, that's what I want to tell you. Now you know the history. Now we need to let's come to modern day America and ask, how is how is it that Home Depot and Coca Cola and Disney and all the corporations can be led around by the nose by what's ultimately a small group of people in the country. How could they dominate big business so thoroughly? I will tell you how they're doing it when we come back for the rest of the Corey Direct Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Obviously, I do intend to recognize that this is Holy Week, and we're going to talk about that some uh, before we're done today. But I just did all this reading and research, and I have it. Teaming teeming on the tip of my tongue and I that I have that thing, maybe you have it too. When you learn something new, you gotta tell somebody. That's the completion of the learning process is then teaching it to someone else. And I am excited to have learned this information and I want to share it with you. We'll do that in a moment. Welcome back to the Corey True Act Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and right here on his radio talk. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You will find me there. Or you can write to the show at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. So we've discovered there was a coordinated effort in secular progressive humanist leftism to take over the institutions because that's how they'll get to their ultimate goal of a totalitarian state once you know one power one power to rule them all and here's what i discovered i remember a little of this when i was a uh, when i was a kid and i was into these things when i say kid i mean my mid teenage years there was a movement amongst the left inside business called ppp and it stood for people planet profits So it was saying to all the big Fortune 500, everyone traded on the the Nasdaq, the Dow, the S P 500. They were trying to say to those boards, when you are making decisions, profit cannot be your only measurement of success. First, people, how are you affecting your customer, your suppliers, the supply chain? How are you affecting? Uh, taxpayers, when you make decisions to maximize your profit, you need to also consider people and how you're affecting them. Two, planet. The thing that you do, ExxonMobil, The thing that you do, uh, GE General General Electric. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're manufacturing, what effect are you ha- have having on the planet? And the movement was saying to com- companies and corporations, you need to be okay with making less money and having less profit in uh, to. T- to sacrifice the profit to benefit people and planet. Of course, there is some, some wisdom in that. That, as we make decisions, that profit itself isn't the only thing. There's another version of that that's in the last 10 years, maybe 10 or 15, that turned PPP into something called stakeholder capitalism. So our system is shareholder capitalism, where if you're a company or a corporation, your primary goal is to make money for the shareholder. So someone took 10 grand, a grand, took $100 and bought a share or a partial share of your company. They invested their money with you and now they own a little piece of your company. Your primary goal is to get shareholders more value, to get shareholders more money. So operate profitably so that the shareholders can have a higher their share of the company is worth more. That same group of people come along and say, no, we should have stakeholder capitalism. Where people who have no money in the company, you need to think about them. Think about how you're affecting all the folks who don't have any money in your company. It's related to PPP. Now, that group who's who's tried to get companies, corporations, to abide by their values have taken a new tactic... And it's much more aggressive. And in my words, I would say insidious. I found that most of the practitioners of this came out of the United Nations. The, the, I could give you the names, none of them are American, most of them are German, and uh, there was I think there was a couple of French names, came up with this idea. They now have a strategy called ESG, stands for environmental social governance. And instead of just pressuring companies and trying to do like an educational effort to say, think about the planet and people, or think about the stakeholders, they have organized themselves, the left has always been much better at organization, to actually infiltrate the boardroom with actual dollars. I do some small-time investing myself. So, for example, I own a little bit of Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, there's another... To Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and another company. I can't remember which one. Amazon. And every time they have a a board meeting, I get a link. I'm allowed to listen in to the, to the meeting of the, the folks who run the company. And technically, because I own a couple shares, I can put my name on the list, and I can speak up and have, I think it's like 60 seconds to speak. It's different for each one. And I can ask a question if I want to on that conference call. I'm allowed as a shareholder. And because of that system, what the purveyors of ESG have done is get, to get, get their money together to buy 2%, 3% of all the shares available, and they're showing up to these board meetings. When they happen in person, when they happen to the conference calls, they are showing up and they are causing issues. The environmental social governance agenda is as follows, you can probably guess. The environmental piece is they are there to advocate for decisions that might lead to less profit, but they think it's better for global warming or climate change or whatever they're calling it now, and it's better for the environment. Social. A lot of them now are pushing for a minimum level of minority candidates to be hired for senior-level jobs. Minority, I mean ethnic minority. Ethnic minority candidates or women to be placed on the board. They're showing up to pressure for Certain kinds of benefits, and get more for the employee, for the for the uh, for suppliers, things like that. They're showing up and saying, "Yeah, we're, we're actually as a as shareholders saying we'll take less money, and we want you to make these decisions regarding giving benefits, a- adding homosexual couples to your benefit package, adding to your medical coverage transgender surgeries, adding to your your requirement for your the makeup of your higher." the makeup of your executive levels need to have this many women, this many LGBT folks, and this many people of this many of this ethnicity. They're doing that kind of stuff. That's the social. And I I should have said that is the governance as well. Oh, the social actually was a big part of the, every company on planet earth during the black lives matter, uh, protests that, and some that turned into riots in 2020 that were, Putting out Black Lives Matter stuff constantly. Like, you think of this one. Oreo recently took some, took some criticism because they produced a commercial about uh, a boy who thought he was a girl or a girl who thought he was a boy saying so to his grandmother or something. Well, how does that happen? How does Oreo, a company that's supposed to sell cookies, do an entire piece of propaganda for a transgender ideology? Well, it's because of ESG. There is, and I'll tell you why they have power in a minute and why anyone would care. So that the social stuff is, hey, you better say something about Black Lives Matter. When June or July, whatever it is, comes and it's supposed to be, quote, Pride Month, this is what, you, you got to do this during Pride Month to show that you're on board with the LGBTQIA plus agenda. And they're getting into the boardroom using their dollars to influence. Now here is why it is starting to get insidious and so effective. There's some really large ratings companies out there, places like BlackRock. Now, BlackRock does more than that. There's there's a few like BlackRock. BlackRock is a investment firm. You can give them their money. They'll invest it for you. And BlackRock, it's very comfortable being activist investors, using the money that you give them, that all you wanted was a return. You didn't want to be involved in the activism. You just knew that they're good investors. But BlackRock is full of leftists, and they are using their money to try to get left-wing causes supported through business. Here's the final step. There's now, in the rating agencies, and BlackRock has one of those too, they're now giving companies an ESG score. So, for example, they're going to give an ESG score, an environmental, social, and governance score to, let's just go with Chevron. Chevron Mobile, oil company. They're going to give ESG, give them a low environmental score. And if they don't say the right thing about Black Lives Matter or an LGBTQ thing at the right time, they're going to give them a lower social score. And if they don't put the right number of people on their governing board of the right ethnicities and races, excuse me, ethnicities and uh, sexes, They're going to give them a lower ESG score. And then you might say, logically, why would they care? Why would they care if this agency gives them a low score? How does that affect them? Well, now these same same activist investor types are going to places like Merrill Lynch and Bank of America and the, the big banks and saying, now you wouldn't want to lend to Chevron Mobile, would you? You wouldn't want to lend to a company who has a low ESG score because we might give you a low ESG score, or maybe you should just charge them a higher interest rate. And as they infiltrate the financial systems and all the big businesses that like to use the financial the financial system and like to, to borrow money to do different projects and things, to uh, to use use them for capital, they f- they feel pressure to do what the ESG, ESG folks want to get what they want from the banks, and the banks feel the same pressure. So they're holding them at some, some level some level of hostage like the 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 ratings are the ratings are also going to mutual funds so let's say the the fund that you inv- that a government invests for their county employee pensions well when you go to invest these rating companies are saying well you may not want to invest in that company they got a pretty low ESG score and they're trying to include incentives for those kind of brokers as well and we're only going to see it grow that businesses are going to have incentivized, financially incentivized, to do what this small group of people want them to do. Now, two thoughts on this that are themes from the show. This is one thing that, the, that secular progressive humanism, as expressed in American leftism, they have so effective that I wish the church did. The left, secular progressive humanism, permeates everything. They look at every part of life and every part of the world and say, I want it. For my kingdom, for my values, I, I can see nothing on this planet that does not need to belong to my kingdom and my values. And they go after everything. So how then to respond? So now, you know why it's happened? It's Mar- it's Grampsky, and Marxism, with its strategy of taking over the institutions, worked out now by some folks from the U.N. who use environmental social governance to try to blackmail companies into doing what they want. How do you respond? I know a lot of folks are working on a shoestring budget, but I think this is something we probably all should do, is when you have a couple hundred bucks, go buy a share, one share of Microsoft. Go buy one share of... Actually, you probably have to buy a partial share of Amazon. Amazon's trading at like 22 2200 dollars a share right now. I I don't I don't know if we should go buy shares of Disney right now. Disney might be too far gone. I got I got out of Disney and stopped owning any Disney stock a couple years ago. But eventually, I don't know who it's gonna be. It won't be me. I don't have the the, the clout to do this. But eventually we're gonna need to get in those boardrooms. We're going to need to be able to say to the folks running these companies, hey, don't listen to this small group of radicals. Most of us don't want you to do this. Like Disney, we just want your entertainment. That's all we want. We don't want you to make points. Home Depot, I just want your tools, man. I don't need any other statements from you. To Coca-Cola, I just want all your products. I don't need you to do any activism. We just want you to do business. It's the idea of shared spaces. We are in a country that desperately needs shared spaces or there's some kind of neutrality. And most certainly, it is secular-progressive humanist leftism that is the aggressor. When they find a neutral place, the public schools, a business, when they see anything being neutral, they look at it and go, nope, that's mine. That's a vehicle for my ideology. I want it. I want to use its power, and I want to use its influence to get what I want. And so, admittedly, they're the aggressor. We didn't do it. But we need to be able to respond. And on the takeover of business, this might be one of the ways to respond is activism that will come as small-time investors. And eventually, maybe somebody comes along that does the opposite of ESG and gets, to, gets us all together. They all, all have a little bit of money, can give away a little bit of it to make an investment in a company, to say to them, stop being partisan hacks for insanity and just be a normal business. And that's what I learned on a question that started with, hey, why is Disney supporting cutting the genitals off of kids? It took me down that very long rabbit hole. Because this would be a very hard transition, I'm taking an early break. When we come back, we will have a lot of stuff for you, including what I teased at the beginning. There's been a kerfuffle in the Southern Baptist Convention and Christianity generally because of an organization that appreciated the confirmation of Uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, I have a reflection on Easter or Resurrection Day I want to give you. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Churak Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and right here on His Radio Talk. They're called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm generally a huge fan of them, but they recently made a very big mistake. Welcome back to the True Act Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. Glad you are here. You probably have heard that the president's nominee to the Supreme Court was confirmed recently. Uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson is her name. She'll start this fall when that is Stephen Breyer. Yep, yeah, I think I'm right about that. When he leaves, here is the, the story I want to tell you surrounding that event. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is the public policy division of the Southern Baptist Convention. So here I am, a Southern Baptist, an elder in a Southern Baptist church, uh, a believer in the Southern Baptist Convention as a good vehicle for gospel proclamation, church planting, the training of the next generation of church leaders. I think it's a great organization or has a great potential to do good kingdom work. One of its divisions is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Their charge is to be the voice for Southern Baptists to state and federal governments to create the resources that might be able to help churches teach their people the proper relationship between the citizen and the government and uh, what citizenship looks like to be a a dual citizen, as it were, uh, a citizen truly of the kingdom, but then also having to live here. So that's what they do. And they take a lot of I think they take a lot of undue criticism from my people. There are some folks that are just really aggressive politically. That's where they live. They think politics, they seem to think, I don't want to ascribe this for sure, but they seem to think politics is where the war is. And I just don't think it I don't think it is. I think it's one of the battlegrounds. There's a great line in Psalms that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Everything in this world, the, I think there's a podcast out there called The World and Everything in It. All of it belongs to the Lord. And so there's a bunch of battlegrounds. One of them is government, but there's a lot of folks in the Southern Baptist Convention where government is the battle. Politics is the battle. That's where the angels are fighting the demons. And by the way, I do think that's, that's true. I think there's demonic forces inside our politics. And we... Can, can be the salt and the light in that world. But I'm just saying the people who criticize them tend to be the ones who overvalue what politics is to the Christian. And I've been a staunch defender of the ERLC over the years. I think they've done a good job. Boy, they made an error on this one. After that confirmation, they tweeted something to the effect... Well, you know what? I have it. Doug, my big brother and pastor, sent it to me. There it is. Okay. um, They tweeted... Despite the philosophical and legal differences individuals like me will have with her, judge Jackson's confirmation is a history-making moment and we should appreciate we should appreciate it as such. And if we lose the ability to do that, we lose something that makes us an exceptional nation. They even added that they pray that she'll join the nation's highest court and decide cases about human dignity, religious liberty, and the protection of the family based on the fundamental principles of our country. Right, so that's delusional. The woman doesn't even know what a woman is, and her history shows that's not who she is. That's not who nom- that's not who gets nominated by Democrats. That's not who ends up on the court. You end up with the radicals, who very very genuinely hate every th- basically everything that the the Bible would teach about sex, sexuality, gender, family, r- liberty, freedom, religious liberty, power of governments. That's who gets appointed. And so they took some heat for this, and they deserved every bit of it. And then there's some people that were defending this that I was super disappointed in. I will not name names because I'm not that guy. But what should then be our, our, let's go with sentiment, our persuasion towards this event? Should we just appreciate it because of the historic nature of a particular gender and a particular, no, I'm not using that word anymore, uh, because of a certain sex and ethnicity? took a spot. Should we just appreciate it? Of course not. The proper persuasion or sentiment, the proper feeling is sadness. There's a proverb that says when the righteous rule, the people rejoice; when the wicked rule, the people mourn or something like that. We are we desire to see righteousness in high places. And when that's not the case, we are sad about it. There's another proverb somewhere about how when the when the righteous increase, I think it's... Uh, and here's what's true. Someone with very evil ideas and who will rule in evil ways has been elevated to a power to have more impact with those evil ideas. And if you think that goes too far to call it evil, I and mean, here's what I mean. If things don't turn around here... In my in my lifetime, it might be her that writes the opinion that says, "No, pastors, you cannot preach biblical sexuality." We're shutting down that part of free speech. That's that's who we just elevated. That's her attitude. Government is all powerful. the The biblical sexual mor- morals, all the biblical morals, are not good morals. the The decision that will Empower governments to do whatever it wants against its people, she might write those rulings. And so I don't, I never tend towards anger. Like, I, I don't want to be angry about anything. It's not, it's not my, something I go to. But what do we, what should our attitude and feelings be when someone with evil or unbiblical ideas gets power? Well, we should be sad. I actually wish that attitude, the attitude of mourning, m o u r n, mourning would mark the Christ, the American Christian's interaction with politics and government more often. Because the, where we are now, at least, most of the time, no matter who wins a given election, you don't have a good, a good person. You can have someone who is less likely to do damage. You can have someone whose worldview aligns a little bit more, or maybe a lot more, biblically. But we, we just don't have decent humans often that are in these positions. And so I I wish the attitude was more often, oh, I do not like this. I don't like that I'm having to go vote like this. I wish I had a better option. And then when the person actually is elevated, they're inaugurated, they 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 take power, not having attitudes of jubilance and celebration, but just having, yeah, I guess the better thing happened, the better of the two options that this particular culture at this time in history that we've been given. But... Man, I wish this. I wish there was something better in never having a cheerleading atmosphere towards any given uh, outcome. I think that would mark. I think that would be a more faithful marker to our politics. If you think I'm wrong on that, if you think there's room for the Christian to celebrate and throw a party and uh, after after some given outcome politically, you let me know. I'm willing to hear that. I just. I think mourning should likely be our appropriate response. Uh, well, might we might end up finishing here? I don't know how long this will take me, but. It's the end of Holy Week, if you're listening to me live, well, coming up on the end of Holy Week, if you're listening to me live on Saturday. If you're listening earlier in the week on the podcast, we are in the midst of it. On Sundays, the Lord's Day, every every Sunday, when the church gets together, we get together on Sunday because it commemorates the Lord rising from the dead. Historically, The Jews had a different day that was, God's people had a different day set apart as holy, and so we start meeting on the first day of the week because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And if you're doing your church services, I will go ahead and just say correctly, then you are celebrating every single time you get together, that this Jesus is alive. And so as we've walked through this week, the triumphal entry of Sunday, and that thing I say every year, that the voice is crying, Hosanna, Hosanna somehow just days later are crying, crucify him, crucify him. All the drama of that week, I think it's important that we stop and pause and remember where we are on the calendar. That we have well, there's actually there's stuff to there's stuff to commemorate each day, because Jesus is teaching in the temple on Monday and Tuesday. I would argue manipulating the situation to cause his own death because no one takes his life from him, but he willfully lays it down. And so he elicits a response from the Pharisees, Sadducees, the high priest, by answering the questions the way he did. He provoked them by saying, we'll render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and to God that which is God's. He provoked them by going into the temple and cleaning it out and telling that very provocative story about the the the, un, the unfaithful servant tending to that field. So he spent Monday and Tuesday provoking his own death by eliciting in, in them the reaction they had. They thought he was a threat to their power. Leading us to Wednesday, where we, in part, the church history, we remember this is probably when Judas Iscariot, at least in the official story. I know a lot of folks do not see the timeline this way. It's totally fine. Um, I don't even know if I see the timeline this way. That's when Judas Iscariot would have betrayed Jesus, went and gotten his ill-gotten gains, leading us then to Thursday, the Last Supper. And that's why we call it Maundy Thursday, by the way, where Jesus has his followers in the upper room, and he says, you've been given a lot of commandments, but a new commandment I give to you, love one another. That Maundy comes, I think, from the Latin, mondus, command the the command the command is to love each other that's Thursday this week that we remember that before before our Lord went to his cross his word to us was love each other specifically it was you followers of me love each other taking us to Good Friday that, that oddly named to some people Good Friday but I've I can think of no I can think of no better day than when all of my arrogance and all of my pride and all of my dishonesty I can think of no better day than when all of my lust and all of my love of this world and my idolatries when all of my guilt was placed on the God man instead of the wrath of God being poured out on me it was poured out on him. That's a very good Friday to me leading to silent saturday where the hopes of many were just dashed those that really thought they had they really thought they had found him they had found the christ they had found the messiah and now he lay dead in a tomb but the silence of saturday gives way to the glory of sunday an empty tomb a risen savior revealing himself to followers all over the place as I reflected on Easter, this is actually the eighth one I think we've spent together—seven or eight—that we've spent together on the show. And every year, almost, I will do like an Easter reflection, and I'm about to talk to you. I'm about to talk to you about a portion of the Easter narrative or the message of Easter that I never had before. It might be because I'm getting older, and I've I'm starting to. Uh, experience more things, starting to think about the future. But as I started thinking through this, I, I realized I probably overlooked this part of Easter because of my relative youth and the very charmed life that I live. I think it was either John Owen that said it first, who knows who said this first, but that Easter, or the resurrection, represents the death of death. I think somebody even preached a sermon A very famous sermon called It's the Death of Death Through the Death of Christ. That on that weekend on Easter morning, death died. But I'm I'm 36. I'm in good physical condition. I probably have never even really taken the time to focus on the fact that one day I'll die. I've lost all four of my grandparents. By the time of their passing, four incredible people that I really love dearly, but by the time of their passing, I had not been super close to them. I realized that I've not actually lost to death anyone very close to me. There have been deaths in my proximity, people of my age, folks that I knew, but never a sibling, never a parent, never a very close friend. Actually, as of right now, I haven't lost a pet I've not felt the pain of death. But I bet so many of you have. You know, I I mentioned that pet thing. I think it's very it's very real. They, they become part of the family and there's a real sorrow that comes along with it. Some of you have suffered the loss of your parents. I actually I think of that for one of my best friends. He he actually used to be on the show, he Heath lost his father in the last, I guess it's almost two years now, I think, I, I, I haven't had to suffer through any of that. I, th- I think of him, but he's actually felt the pain of death, the finality of it. That's, I think, one of the beauties of resurrection is the thing that actually feels so final, that has affected so many of you. In such profoundly emotional negative ways, the death of something or someone that you deeply cherished. The thing that feels so permanent is not permanent. I think it's in part one of the reasons I, I'm so optimistic. I'm sure it's partly just because I've had an easy life, but there, there's something about ideological DNA. Like, so I I took my a lot of my facial features come from my dad's side of the family there's some DNA that makes my nose this big but I think there's also ideological DNA I come from a long line of Jesus followers and the that that long line of Jesus followers what has what has happened in them is that we were a people that once thought all hope was lost all hopes were dashed the end had come and then it wasn't over it's I think it's it's deeply ingrained in me that the, the end is not the end. death is not the end because death died that weekend. I think of I think that's first Corinthians that says this perishable, that's us, we are the perishable will have put on the imperishable. We who can die will put on the the, the power not to die and this mortal will put on immortality. And think the end of that verse is, then will come a time or a saying or a something is written, something like this, and it's, it ends with, death is swallowed up in victory. Not just death is swallowed up in survival, death is swallowed up in living. Death is swallowed up in victory, death is defeated, it no longer exists. I think that's actually, uh, yeah, that's probably the part in 1 Corinthians that says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I'm becoming more and more positive, as I said earlier, that it's John Owen who talked about the death of death. I I pulled a quote here from him where he said, If there be any comfort, any consolation, any assurance, any rest, any peace, any joy, any refreshment, any exaltation to be obtained from here below, here on earth, here in, in time, it is all to be had in the blood of Jesus, long since shed, and his intercession still continued. Where where do we find any kind of comfort or consolation or assurance, rest, peace or joy if we don't know that this thing that feels so final, death, this thing that has caused so much sorrow for a lot of you listening to me, that it actually does come to an end. That if the, if our loved ones that have gone before are in Christ, as as sure as my next breath you will be reunited with them not in an esoteric abstract way very much embodied healthy energetic the la- I, I think of this for a, a lot of times the last version of your parents you see is infirmed the last version of your cancer ridden friend for they die you see, has wasted away. The last version of that close person that you loved, the last version of, you, that, of them that you see is in peril and pain. They're barely there mentally. You don't get that person back. You get their best version back. And I've, I've overlooked, I think my whole life, because I haven't experienced the pain of death, I overlooked one of the things that we should be celebrating on this weekend. We, I have always focused on the one that that affected me. Surprise, surprise! I focused on the thing that affected me. I focused on the cross, and that my sins have been punished, and that I bear them no more. I focus on the resurrection, because my uh, my my greatest problem, sin, is solved, and ultimately, whatever whenever death comes around, I guess it just feels abstract to me. It doesn't feel real to me. Like, I guess in the resurrection is the ultimate power that that this King Jesus that I serve this King Jesus that I worship yeah he conquered everything he even conquered the one unconquerable thing he conquered death and just saw it as victory and authority and power but never the practicality of every tear will be made dry all of the goodbyes you've had to say get to be unset get to be unsaid It's probably the the quote from Lord of the Rings I've given you the most, and I don't know any other way to end the show but giving you that. It just occurred to me again. It's that great line. I think it's from the Battle of Minas Tirith. It wasn't in the movie, but it was in the books. Where Pippin, the hobbit, thinks Gandalf is gone, thinks Gandalf has died. Gandalf reemerges very dramatically. And Pippin has been sobbing. Pippin has been deep in his emotions of losing the the great white Gandalf. The great white wizard, that is Gandalf. And when when he sees him, he says to Gandalf, does everything sad become untrue? That is a part of our resurrection weekend that I've overlooked and I want us to focus on. Listen to me, believer. If you have lost somebody, And they were in Christ. There's coming a day where that sad thing becomes untrue. And so let's celebrate this weekend that our sins are forgiven. We have been made one with Christ and gotten his righteousness. Let's celebrate that he is very much alive and active in this world and that one of the consequences of his total victory and authority over sin, death, and the grave is that one of these days... We get to be reunited with all the saints that have gone before. That's your Easter reflection for 2022. I'm so grateful you listen every week on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts, The Cory Truax Show. If you'd be so kind to write a review of the show, rate the show, it always helps others find it. I will be back with another new edition of The Cory Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace, love, and happy Resurrection Day.